Uh, last Sunday, we're, we're really excited uh, to share with you that the membership at our annual meeting uh, voted in three additional elders to join our, our Cedar Home elder team, and we, we praise God for that. And uh, next week, I plan to jump back into the book of Acts, but since this is the first time in six years that we've added lay elders to our elder team at our church, <clears throat> I thought this would be the, the perfect opportunity to look at what the Bible teaches about eldership in the local church. And so I want us this morning to look at God's word together. And, and then at the end of uh, my message, I'd like the elders to come forward on the stage uh, so that you can see them and so that we can pray for them as a church. And after that, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So a lot of great things we get to do in the service today. So in our time here, I want to answer, hopefully, four questions about eldership this morning. First, how is Jesus leading his people? Second, what is an elder? Third, why are all of our elders at Cedar Home men? And fourth, how can we help our elders? Okay, I'll get to each of those one at a time. Um, before we dig into these questions here, let's ask the Lord to continue to help us through his word. Lord, we thank you for being our great shepherd uh, who loves us as individuals, who loves us as his church, and who takes care of us. We thank you, Jesus, for laying down your life for us as our shepherd to save us from the wolves of hell. Lord, as a church family, we, we want to organize our church the way that you tell us to. And so we ask that as we open your word, you would help us understand how you love us through the way that you lead your church. And may this time together not be just an accumulation of knowledge, but help us to see you more, help us to see your love more, help us to trust you more, uh, and to grasp the greatness of your love and the, and the greatness of your holiness, and to see the good design that you have for humanity and for our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Okay, first question, how is Jesus leading his people? When we talk about Christians, we often talk about the church because the church is the word we use to describe all people throughout history who belong to Jesus Christ through faith in his life, death, and resurrection. Okay? The church is God's people. Before Jesus left heaven and came to earth, God gave people uh, excuse me, I'm, I didn't say this right. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, okay, I'm just looking at this. I gotta be real careful with my words here. While Jesus was physically still in heaven, before he came to earth, God gave people eternal life as they looked forward in faith to the coming Messiah, to Jesus Christ, okay? After Jesus came to earth, during his life on earth, God gave individuals eternal life as they looked at Jesus in faith. And after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, this period of history in which we live, God gives individuals eternal life and salvation as we look back to Jesus in faith and what he accomplished in his life and on the cross and in his resurrection. So everyone who has ever trusted in Jesus and everybody who will ever trust in Jesus belongs to the church, belongs to God's people. Jesus paid 
for the sins of these people, his church, on the cross when he died for them. And the Bible uses a number of different analogies to describe this close relationship that Jesus has with his church. Uh, These analogies always describe Jesus as the loving leader who nurtures his people and sustains his people. Sometimes Jesus is called the head of his church. Colossians 1, 17 to 18 says, And he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. And he is uh, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And then Ephesians 5, 22 to 23 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, the body, uh, his body, and is himself its Savior. Okay, so Jesus is the head of his church. Jesus is also called the true vine that gives, who gives life to his church. John 15, 5 says, this is what Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. He is the true vine on whom we are dependent. And Jesus is also called the bridegroom of his people. Uh, his people, the church, are called his bride. In Revelations 19, 7 to 8, we, we, we read about the future day when Jesus will return to earth to be with his bride forever in the flesh. It says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So, What does this say about Jesus and his church? Jesus is the head of his church, and he leads the church as he leads, as a head leads a body, okay? Jesus is also the true vine of the church, and he leads the church by giving his life for it, by sustaining the church with his life. And Jesus is also the groom of the church, and he leads his bride by uniting himself to her, just as a groom and bride are united in marriage. Now, another analogy that is probably the most common analogy used in the Bible to illustrate the way that God leads his people is is God as a shepherd and his people as his sheep. One of the most famous psalms written by King David, Psalm 23, is all about how the Lord is the shepherd of his people who takes great care of his people because he cares for them. And this shepherd imagery is all over the Bible. The, The prophet Isaiah wrote that the Lord will tend his flock like a shepherd. Jesus said about himself, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The writer of Hebrews describes Jesus as the great shepherd who was brought back from the dead by the power of God. And so how is Jesus leading his people? How is he leading his church right now? Well, he says in his word that he, God the Son, He's exalted right now in heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father. And as Jesus waits for the appointed time to return to earth for the final judgment, he is actively, sovereignly shepherding his people. Jesus supernaturally knows his people perfectly, as individuals 
and as a corporate body. He spiritually feeds his people fully with his word. Jesus leads his people by his Holy Spirit in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That's what Psalm 23 says. And Jesus spiritually protects his people with uh, the word of his truth, and he protects us eternally with his blood, and he says that no power can snatch his people from his all-powerful hand. That's what he says. No one can snatch them from my hand. This is how Jesus is shepherding his universal church, okay? The universal church means it's, it's the collection of all the people throughout history who belong to Jesus through faith in his life, death, and resurrection, okay? Now, within the universal church is the collection of Christians alive right now on earth who form smaller groups called local churches, And Jesus leads Christians on earth as he sovereignly shepherds us from heaven. And while we're on earth, he shepherds us in a more localized way through the leaders of local churches. And the name that God gives to the office of the primary leaders of local churches is elder. And we read about elders as leaders of God's people as far back as the book of Genesis, uh, when elders led the Hebrew people. And the design of of eldership was not intended to be for the Hebrews alone. God intends eldership to be a leadership model that transcends cultures. So thousands of years after the events of Genesis, by the time that Christianity really started taking off in the first century after Jesus' death and resurrection, the, the office of elder actually carried even more weight to it as it required the elders of the local church to be the primary teachers of God's word and the spiritual shepherds of the Christians within their care. Now, to be clear, elders are not the top shepherds in charge of the church. Jesus is the top shepherd, okay? Elders are what you might call under-shepherds who are appointed to oversee local churches until Jesus returns, okay? And the Bible gives churches specific instructions for identifying elders to lead their churches, okay? Um, Appointing elders and serving as an elder is a very serious task because according to Hebrews 13, those who serve as elders have to give an account for how they shepherd the church. And as serious a responsibility as it is to serve as an elder, it's also important for elders and all of us to remember that the eternal salvation of the elders does not rest upon their performance as an elder. No, the, just like everybody else, elders are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's a big amen from the elders, okay? Okay, let's move on to the second question. What is an elder? So an elder is a primary spiritual leader of the local church. The New Testament refers to the office of elder by several different names, depending on the translation of your Bible. You'll see elder, pastor, overseer, presbyter, bishop. Those are not different offices. Those are one office. It's referring to the office of pastor, elder. And the New Testament model of church leadership shows us that ideally a church will be led by more than one elder. This is called 
having a plurality of elders. So plural means more than one. And so this world word plurality means having more than one elder leading a local church. Uh, we see this in Acts 14.23 where Paul appointed elders in the local churches. It says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So as, as a plurality of elders, the, the elders share the responsibility. They share the responsibility of church leadership rather than having everything fall on the shoulders of one man. And each of the elders has an equal vote in decision-making. Pastor Alexander Strauch writes, although elders act jointly as a council and share equal authority and responsibility for the leadership of the church, all are not equal in their giftedness uh, biblical knowledge, leadership ability, experience, or dedication. Again, this is why we believe in team ministry at the elder level, at the deacon level, at all the different levels of the church because God has created us differently and we need one another. So if you read our church constitution and bylaws, you'll see that the elders in church delegate certain tasks to various staff and ministries. For example, as the lead pastor uh, slash elder here, the church and elders hire me to oversee the preaching ministry and the visitation ministry and the vision casting of the church. Uh, the elders in church also hire Dylan, who's currently our deacon of worship, to oversee the worship ser uh, service and the worship ministry. And, and as he graduates college here very soon, he's going to be taking on uh, more ministry areas, which we're excited about. And obviously, we have other staff and other ministries and other ministry leaders uh, in lots of different areas. So, so the, the work of elders and the staff together is not necessarily to do all of the work of the church, but to equip and unleash the church so that the God-given mission of the church is being advanced by the entire body, okay? You hear that? The elders and deacons and staff are not to be the church and to do all the ministry of the church, but to equip, encourage the church to, to go do the ministry of the church, okay? <clears throat> the elders are not a church board, okay? They're not CEOs. They're not officials. They're not the popular people within the local church, even though that happens in churches. And that, if you've ever been part of a church like that, you know how unhealthy that is. Uh, they're not policy makers, okay? The elders of the church are called to be the shepherds of God's people who love God's people and who lead God's people to love and obey the God of the Bible. And the New Testament gives us three key passages that describe the qualities that the church should look for in selecting elders. 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7. It says, this saying, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober minded, self controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. 
Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Another main passage is Titus 1, 5 to 9, which says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. In 1 Peter 5, 1-4, the third passage says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So these passages give us the main criteria to look for in elders of the church. So the church must be very careful not to turn a blind eye to any of these character traits. For instance, if an elder has a pattern of being quick-tempered, it's not okay for the church to accept that behavior as normal and say, well, that's just how so-and-so is. Obviously, we need to show our leaders grace and forgiveness because they're sinful people, just like the rest of us. However, if there, is a, if there is a pattern of unrepentant sin in a leader's life, then more serious action needs to be taken. And just as the church must not look over any of these criteria for eldership, the church also has to be careful not to add man-made criteria to the biblical elders, uh, criteria for eldership. For instance, the Bible does not say that a potential elder must be a, a part of a church for so many years in order to become an elder there. The Bible does not say that a potential elder must be a certain race or must meet a certain demographic or must have a certain amount of income or must be a blue-collar person or a white-collar person. The criteria that the New Testament gives for elders of the local church is primarily character qualifications. And that's probably because the work of the elders is so diverse. And it's impossible to anticipate all the different situations that might arise with, within a church that what the church needs most is godly men who love Jesus, who are pursuing personal holiness, who love people, and who desire to lay down their own lives for the good of the flock. Those are the type of people you want leading a church. And... As seen in these passages, a very important part of a man's fitness for eldership is his family life. And while elders' wives are not expected to serve in an official capacity of leadership in the church, their own pursuit of godliness is crucial to the spiritual health of their husbands and to the spiritual health of the church. And like their husbands, elders' wives must live lives of integrity and, and be above reproach. And as those who may potentially have access to 
information regarding confidential discussions among the elders. It's critical that elders' wives are neither gossips nor slanderers. Thus, the calling from God to serve as an elder is a great privilege and a great responsibility for the elder and for his wife. It should not be entered into lightly or flippantly. The third question I want to address is, why are all of our elders at Cedar Home men? Or a more important way to ask this is, do we believe that the Bible teaches that elders should only be men? And this is a very important question, and it's a very complex question. And I would be wary of anyone who answers this question quickly without having wrestled with a lot of different passages in both the Old Testament and New Testament. So if you disagree with me and with what we believe at this church about this, don't run up to me right after the service and tell me how mad you are at me. I want you, what I want you to do is get into the Bible and think for yourself and see all the different passages that have to do with this. And then after you've taken time to study it and consult godly people and pray about it, then let's discuss if you have questions, right? But it does get to be a, a heated argument. The question of, of women eldership in the church is, it's maybe the most heated argument in the 21st century church, especially in America, where lots of conversations right now are taking place about what does gender even mean? And, and what does marriage even mean? How do you define it? And the abuse of power by men in leadership positions and so forth. And so it's crucial, I'll say from the outset, to understand that this is not an issue of men versus women, because there are men and women on both sides of this issue, okay? The heart of the question here really is, what is the correct way to interpret and apply the Bible? That's what we wanna do as Christians. How, how do we figure out what the original intentions of the authors were who wrote God's word as the Holy Spirit guided them? And, and how do we read these scriptures which were written at different times, a long time ago, and in different cultures, and in cultures really different from our culture in America? And how do we correctly apply that to our lives today? Those are the questions we need to wrestle with regardless of the issue at hand, okay? And I will say this, it's important to recognize that the discussion of women elders is not a salvation issue, okay? In other words, your eternal salvation is not in jeopardy depending on where you stand on this issue. Your salvation is in jeopardy depending on where you stand on the issue of Jesus Christ and his gospel, okay? There are godly people who love Jesus who believe that women should be pastors, and there are godly people who love Jesus and believe that only men should be pastors. Now, as a pastor of this church, I wanna explain briefly as I can uh, what our church and denomination believes about this issue. The Bible teaches that God created humanity in his own image. First, he created man, and he named the first man Adam. And God said that it was not good for man to be alone. And so it says he created a helper for Adam. And he made the helper from Adam's flesh, and he called the helper woman, and he called the woman Eve. And so women and men are both created in God's image and are equal in dignity and worth. It is unbiblical to say that a person is inherently more valuable because of his or her gender. The fact is that we are equally important in God's eyes and equally valuable in God's eyes. And while men and women are equally valuable, they're also very different from one another. That's how God made us. Men and women are very different physically. 
We're very different emotionally. We're different socially. And that's a good thing. God created us that way on purpose so that we would complement each other, okay? And when I say that men and women complement each other, I, I don't mean we say nice things to each other, even though that's a good thing. I mean that men and women complement each other in the sense that we are like puzzle pieces that fit each other, and together we make a complete picture. The strengths of women complement the weaknesses of men. And the strengths of men complement the weaknesses of women. And so we believe that the Bible teaches a concept called complementarianism. Complementarianism. This is what it says. Complementarianism says that God created men and women equal in dignity and worth. And he also created them differently so that they would complement each other and work together to bring glory to God. And the Bible gives us many passages about the complementary roles of men and women. And one of those important ones in the New Testament is Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever, ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So, in the context of family, the husband is supposed to lead and protect and provide for his wife and children. And he is to lead his family not in a domineering way or in an abusive way or in an egotistical way. He is commanded to lead his family the way that Jesus would lead his family. The man is supposed to put himself last and he is supposed to lay down his life for his family as the chief servant of the family. Now I have yet to meet a Christian wife who says that she does not want her husband to love her and cherish her and lead her and to lead their family in loving the Lord and loving others as he protects them and provides for them as long as he is physically able. And as the husband pursues godliness and seeks to lead his family with self-sacrificing love, the wife is instructed to honor her husband and to submit to him as the head of the family. Now listen closely. This does not mean that she should absolutely do everything he says. Okay? Our approach to all authority that God puts over us is to submit to that authority as long as we can do so without disobeying God. So if a husband tries to lead his wife into sin, then she must not submit to him. Jesus is the supreme authority for the husband and the wife. Okay? 
The husband is not the final authority. The husband, like all people in authority, is accountable to God. The husband, Christian husband, is accountable to the elders of the church. The husband is accountable to the police, okay? The husband is not an island of himself. And just as God created husbands to lead their own households, we believe that the Bible also teaches that men ought to lead the household of God. Jesus handpicked, trained, and appointed each of the 12 apostles. And the apostles would go on to be the leaders and first elders of the first Christian churches. And all of the apostles were men. And that's not because women were incapable of leading or because they were less educated than the apostles. Jesus picked men apostles to be the primary spiritual shepherds of the church because it is their responsibility as men to step up and lead, not only in their own households, but also in God's household. And there were many wonderful and gifted women who were devoted followers of Jesus. Uh, Jesus' women followers were often more faithful to Jesus than his men followers were. And additionally, there have been many gifted women who have served in various roles in God's kingdom as prophetesses and judges and teachers. So women must be empowered to serve in ministry. But that itself does not mean that God created men and women to serve in all the same positions. When it comes to the office of elder or pastor, the New Testament explicitly refers to the elders as men. 1 Timothy 3.1 says, he who aspires to the office of overseer desires a noble task. And then the elder is referred to as a husband of one wife, which indicates that the elder would be a monogamous man. 1 Timothy 3, 4-5 says that the elder must be a man who manages his own household well so that he can manage God's household well. Now, the very fact that Paul says that the elder must manage his own household well implies that he's referring to men who are the God-ordained leaders of their own households. And then further, in the 12 verses that describe the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy and Titus, there are 14 masculine pronouns that refer to the elders and zero feminine pronouns in the Greek. And in addition to the criteria given for elders in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and 1 Peter 5, the Bible indicates that it is men elders who should have the primary spiritual authority over the flock when the church is gathered for the teaching and preaching of God's word. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 14.34, the Apostle Paul says that the women should keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted, permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. And in 1 Timothy 2.12, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, when we in 21st century America read these verses, our first thought might be that that sounds really sexist and discriminatory. But in actuality, this is where you have to, this, okay, this is where what you really believe about the Bible comes to the surface. Do you really believe that the entire Bible is inerrant or not? And do you understand that this is a different historical and cultural context? And are you willing to work through some of that to figure out how we apply this to today? Well, in actuality, when you read the teachings of Jesus and when you read the New Testament writers, and when you consider their context, their ancient cultural context in which these things were written, what you'll actually find is that Christianity actually fostered an environment of exceptional appreciation and liberation of women. That's what you find. 
Just read through one of the Gospels and how Jesus interacted with women, and you'll see that yourself. Now, that being said, Paul does say here in 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2 that women must remain quiet when the church is gathered, and they must not exercise authority over men. Now, I did not take this to mean that women should never talk in church, since in 1 Corinthians 11, women are not restricted from public praying or prophesying in church. What is, so what is unique to the preaching and teaching ministry of the church that the elders do? Well, what is unique to the action of preaching and teaching when the church is gathered is the spiritual authority over the flock that the preacher or teacher has. If a woman's activity in a church places her in spiritual authority over a man, then that goes against God's design for the home and for the church. That does not mean there are no venues in church for women to teach. We need women teachers. However, we believe the Bible teaches that when men, women, and children are gathered as the church, the elders who preach God's word with spiritual authority over the flock should be men. We believe that's what the Bible teaches. Now, churches that argue for women elders obviously interpret these passages differently than we do. And I can point you to some good resources if you're interested in learning more about both sides of the discussion. Um, One of the main arguments for women elders is the view that Paul's instructions for eldership were temporarily binding for specific churches and that his instructions were given in a culture in which women were oppressed. And in short, we would not disagree that the churches to whom Paul wrote had unique problems facing their congregations. We wouldn't disagree that certain ancient cultures oppressed women. Uh, We would say, however, that when you look at how God spoke and worked through the Apostle Paul, you'll see that Paul did not limit his uh, elder-led church planning model to specific cities or specific countries. Rather, he and the other apostles traveled across a number of different continents, a number of different cultures, And they appointed men elders whenever they started churches and wherever they were. Now, more significant than that is the fact that in 1 Timothy 2, 13 to 14, Paul says that the reason for having men elders is rooted in the way that God created human beings to work together before sin ever entered the world. Paul says that men were created first and that Adam was the representative of humanity to God. And that doesn't make men any better than women. It does make men more accountable as the spiritual leaders that God created them to be. And so we understand this to mean that God's design for male leadership in the home and in the church is not dependent on the century in which you live or the culture in which you live. God's design for male leadership in the home and in the church is rooted in the creation order itself. And so it applies through all centuries and to all societies. the reason, let me tell you why I'm talking about this. Because I don't want anybody ever to come here to this church and say, oh, they just do that because they're chauvinists. They just do that because they're trying to repress women. They just do that because they don't care about women. That's the furthest thing from the truth. And if we're really trying to be biblical, if we're really trying to follow the example that God's given us, we, uh, we should... We should be trying to follow God's design for how he created and believe that there actually is such a thing as gender and that it's good and that it goes according to God's good design. Um, And it says that we actually need each other. Uh, 
the reason for male eldership in the local church must never be to repress women or to follow tradition for the sake of following tradition or to perpetuate chauvinism, okay? Those are evil actions and attitudes and we must not tolerate them in the church. Instead, we at Cedar Home believe that men should be loving, humble, self-sacrificing servant leaders to their families and these are the kind of men who ought also to serve as elders and pastors. And as I mentioned earlier, this issue of gender roles in the church is not a salvation issue. There are many other Bible-believing churches who do not interpret the scriptures the same way that we do. And we can agree to disagree, and to a certain point, we can work together to advance the gospel in our community and in our world. But I, I believe it's very important for Christians to understand why they believe what they believe. And it's important to learn why churches are different from one another. And it's important for you to know that why we believe in complementary roles for men and women here at Cedarhome. We are not chauvinists. We are not stubborn traditionalists. We are not primitive people. We're not uneducated. And we're not ignorant about the many different discussions taking place in our world right now. And we get that this is not PC. We are thinking people who have been born again by God through faith in Jesus, and it's our desire to read and interpret and obey God's commands as well as we can as we rest in his gospel of grace and as we trust in Jesus alone for our righteousness. The fourth and final question I wanna ask is, how can we help our elders? First, encourage our elders. Encourage our elders with, with your words and actions just as they seek to be an encouragement to you. Thank them. Look after them as they look after you. Second, I would say, show them grace as they lead, just as they show you grace as you follow. Elders carry a heavy mantle, which is often very uncomfortable and painful and overbearing, and they can't talk about it to many people. That's the reality. And in addition, our new constitution is, is seven years old at Cedar Home, and it's, it's very difficult leading cultural change as an elder in a church that previously had a congregational-only form of government for over 100 years. So show them grace as they lead, just as they show you grace as you follow. And third, I would say, please pray for our elders, just as they pray for you. Pray for their personal holiness, pray for their wives and for their families, Pray for the elder team to have supernatural wisdom and unity and faith <clears throat> and discernment and love and humility and perseverance. Before we take communion, what I want to do is I want to close this message by asking our elders to come on stage so that we can pray for them. So <clears throat> for the elders, if you can please come up here so we can pray for you. This year, our elder team uh, includes Dan Olson, Gary Williams, Rob Buchanan, Chris Meyer, John Conley, and myself. And I, I just want to pray for our elders on behalf of our church. And we normally don't do this, but if you feel comfortable raising a hand toward our elders, just as a sign that you're praying for them, uh, please do so, okay? Um, let's close our eyes and pray, okay? Dear Lord, we just, uh, we thank you for being our, our good shepherd. You're the great shepherd who leads us 
who makes us rest, who restores our souls. You are always with us and you comfort us. You know our names and you call us to you. And for anyone here at church today who does not know you as the shepherd of their soul, I pray that they would turn to you in faith and trust in you for eternal salvation. We pray for our elders now, Lord. Uh, we know that because you have saved them eternally, you already indwell them spiritually. But we ask that you would fill them in the spirit and grant them supernatural power to do your work. Please help each of them as individuals to stay close to you. Uh, feed them every day with your word. Help them in their prayer lives. And protect them, Lord, from temptation. Protect them from evil. Give them supernatural courage to do what is right in your eyes, even if it means being disapproved by people. We also pray for our elders' wives and families. And we ask that you would please help them to know you, Jesus. Help them to love you with their lives. And please guard their hearts and their minds and their mouths. And please keep them from evil and temptation. Redeem the time they, they will miss with their husbands and dads because of their service to our church. We also pray for the elders as a team. Please fill them together with your love so that they're abounding in love. Please fill them with the truth of your word and help them to understand and apply your scriptures rightly so that we as a church can walk in the truth. Please give them supernatural wisdom and discernment as they lead our church family and make decisions that affect us. Please give our elders extra faith so that they might make wise decisions while staying dependent upon you. Please give the elders humble hearts and always remind them that they must use their authority to serve and not to be served. Please give them supernatural encouragement and perseverance when leadership takes a toll on them. And Lord, when there are disagreements between them, please help them to come to a resolution in a way that honors you. And we thank you for calling these men to be our elders and for confirming their call through the vote of your church. Lord, we pray all this for the glory of your name. Amen.